All right, brothers and sisters, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Micah chapter 2 as we continue our study of the words of this prophet who was a contemporary of Isaiah, who ministered approximately 50 years, who saw the fall of Samaria the northern, in the northern kingdom to Assyria, and he saw the near demise of Judah to that same army, and he prophesied the coming exile in Babylon. But perhaps more importantly, he tells us of the coming ruler who will lead and shepherd his people in righteousness. So, we turn to Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against this family. I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster." In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach Thus they preach. One should not preach of these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their beautiful houses, from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head." 
Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. And we ask that we would have the humility to hear it, to be warned by it, to indeed be comforted by it. We ask, O God, that even now you would be with us. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. You may recall from last week that I stressed when we study the minor prophets, we need to bear in mind the covenant at all times. Their problem fundamentally was a covenantal one, that they were God's people by covenant, and therefore they had certain duties and expectations that coincided with their great privileges and prerogatives as God's people. And oftentimes we forget the covenantal nature of the minor prophets. And when we read this and we read of the social injustices, we're tempted to think that that is the primary or exclusive concern. And we forget that everything takes place within a biblical theological context. And their problem, as we saw last week, as was highlighted in verse 1, was fundamentally a theological problem of idolatry. They had exchanged the truth of God for lies, for idols. And in so doing, there's a corresponding nature. I don't know why it is. I just know that it is. That there's a corresponding principle that one's idols will shape you. Your idols will shape you and it will in fact inform the injustices that you inflict on others around you. And so consider, for example, go back about 20 years, 22, 23 years, whatever it was, Enron. Remember that? Remember when those executives were were padding numbers and and lining their pockets and setting things up, and then when it all imploded, thousands and thousands of their employees lost their retirements, lost their investments, everything. Their idol was what? Money. And having tasted it and having served it, they could not fathom not sacrificing all for it. Maybe some of you suffered in the fallout from that Enron scandal of 20-some years ago. But one's idols shape and inform one's injustices, which is why when we're talking about the prophets, the minor prophets, and we see injustice always behind it, there's a theological issue, a failure to know Love and believe God as he is. And instead, the elevation of a created thing. Now in that society, which was the church in its infancy, we had governors, kings, rulers, provisional. They had all the trappings of the bureaucracy that we have. 
But before they had all of that, back at the very founding of their nation, the Lord had instituted the Levites and the priests because they were first and foremost a worshiping community. And he had instituted one of the principal duties of the Levites and the priests was to teach the people. And so what we see in this passage is that not only was there a corresponding reality between the idols and the injustices, but there was a corresponding reality to the theological vision that was cast in the instruction of the people with the outworked theology and practical ethics of the people. Look ahead real quick at verse 6. This is an interesting word, and I had fun looking it up. <clears throat> and if you, I'm just going to give you just a taste, and if you want to look at it more, by all means do so. In verse 6, uh, you, you see two people preaching. You, 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 what you have is the prophet sort of repeating back what these false teachers are teaching. Okay? And the word preach is used here. There's many words for preach, herald, proclaim, you know, all sorts of words. But, but this word is, is unique. This word actually refers to the dripping of water. To the drip by drip nature of water. And what it's showing is the subtle yet pervasive way preaching influences. Have you ever wondered why it is that the Lord ordained preaching? And, and if preaching is a means of grace, then, and, then, then, then why do we not, you know, very few people have their lives changed by one sermon. It, it happens. Maybe, you hear, maybe you've heard a sermon that was so profound or it struck you in such a way that, that wow, it's, it's with you to this day. But preaching ordinarily works kind of like water dripping onto that concrete. Drip by drip, slowly but surely, over time, it makes its mark. That's why we gather and that's why we preach Day in and, and week in and week out, okay? By the time we get to this day where Micah is preaching, the Levites and the priests and the kings have been doing their thing for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the prophets tell us that for most of that time, the preaching and teaching of the word of God was almost non-existent. And where it existed, it was garbage. Consider that when Micah writes his book, when he has his ministry, it's over a hundred years until during the reign of Josiah, 
they're doing some work in the temple and, and hey, what's this over in the corner collecting dust? And they pull it out and lo and behold, it's scholars, most scholars believe it was the scroll of Deuteronomy. And that's when Josiah reads it and he tears his clothes. The Lord is indeed angry because we violated this whole thing. It had literally been set aside to collect dust in the corner. So what was the effect over time of this total compromise and disregard for the faithful ministry of the word? Well, you see it here. It's a people who are governed by their lusts and who believe that everything comes down to that most basic of animalistic traits, might makes right. They do what they do. Why? Because it's within the power of their hand to do so. Apart from the regulatory power and effect of the word of God, humanity descends into the brutishness we see here where gussy it up and call it what you want, but the people with power will always execute it in such a way, but at the end of the day, it resorts down to might makes right. The problem with the people is one of idolatry. We see this in verse two. What is, the, what is the core thing, attitudinal thing that they experience that drives the rest of their actions? Verse two, it says, they covet. And I'm pretty sure there's a, there's a fairly important command that says something about thou shalt not, I don't know, what's the word? covet. I'm, I'm sure that's a big one. Is that, is that buried somewhere in some fine print of Leviticus? Thou shalt, no, it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's the Tenth Commandment. And, and scholars have gone, have done a really good job of showing that the Ten Commandments actually come full circle. You see, the First Commandment condemns idolatry and condemns the worship of anything other than God. And the 10th commandment basically is the first commandment restated in terms of our practical existences. Because the thing you covet, you idolize. Paul tells us this. So they covet. And they use their force to take it. And God's law and his covenant matters not. When I read this passage about fields and seizing them and houses and taking them away, I wonder if Micah had in mind Naboth's vineyard that had happened a few years prior. Remember the story of Naboth's vineyard from 1 Kings 21? King Ahab, he wants this field, he wants this vineyard, he wants it bad, but Naboth 
he, he's not just being stubborn and crotchety. He's just not, you know, refusing to, to sell out, waiting for a higher price. No, that's, that's not it, but though that would have been his prerogative, but that's not it. The issue is, is Naboth understands the covenant, and that that land really, even though it's his in the sense that he gets to use it, it's not his in the sense that he can get rid of it. It belongs. It was given to him and his family forever. That doesn't sit too well with old King Ahab, but... You know, he's kind of a weak king, and it's his wife Jezebel who's the real shot caller in that relationship. And, and she plots this whole thing where she basically has people suddenly stand up and say that Naboth was, was slandering the king and blaspheming God as if they cared at all about the latter and strike him down and execute him right here. It was all a sham to get him out of the way so now you can have Naboth's vineyard. And an excellent, excellent, excellent sermon has been preached on that passage. But uh, that's for another date. God's covenantal requirements protected the people. But they had disregarded the covenant because they were driven by their brutish instincts of might makes right because their idols demanded it. And they thought they would get away with it. Verse 1 paints a sad picture. People who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. What do you think about when you go to sleep? Do you think about how you can manipulate the legal system or, or something to get what you want from someone else? Do you think of ways to leverage your influence and power to take without regard for right and wrong, just what's in your power? I don't know. I hope you don't. <laughs> you probably think about your problems and how can I solve my problems and, and try to figure out how things not in your ability to control could suddenly be brought into your ability to control. That's a different sermon. The Lord is painting a picture here of people who aren't just casual sinners who oopsie into sin. They're laying in bed thinking about it. It's what puts them to sleep at night. And verse 3 comes along. And there's an interesting correlation between the wicked devising wickedness and the Lord in verse 3 saying, I am devising disaster. I want to read you what John Calvin has to say about this. John Calvin addresses, in his commentary, he addresses the people through the voice of God. While you are thus busying yourselves on your beds, while you are revolving many designs, you think me to be asleep. You think that I am all the while meditating nothing. Nay, I have my thoughts too. And these are different from yours. For while you are awake to devise wickedness, I am awake to contrive your judgment. Verse 
Who wants to hear a sermon like that? Not these guys. Not these guys. They liked sermons. They, they were patrons of the religious establishment, which is precisely why then in verse 6 you have the, 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 the teachers saying, don't, don't preach that. Are you crazy? And here's what they say. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, that the, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these deeds of, just, of judgment the kind of things that God would do? Well, what have they done? They've deviated from the God of the Bible. And they've instead put all their eggs in the basket of God's love. Time and time again throughout the prophets, we see that the message of the false teachers was always one, always one of resounding optimism. Disaster will not overtake us. God is not angry with us. O oh, king, you will be successful. And they would label as a traitor those who said otherwise. They were feeding God's people consistently a diet of bad theology, starting with the nature of God's character. When your starting point is a doctrine of God that says there are no consequences because he is and only is love, well then, why not do what I want? And then when you forget that there's a God who's holy, that there's a God who is just and righteous and that we should enter into his presence with fear and trembling. Once you've distorted the God of the first table, then you simultaneously then will go astray in regards to the application of the second table, the ethical demands. But in the midst of it, the words of the prophet, the words of God, do my words not do good to him who walks uprightly? God never changes. And in the midst of injustice and in the midst of a world that is governed by might makes right, those who walk by faith and live in faithfulness can be assured that they have the blessing of God. And thus we see at the end of this chapter, the last two verses, it depicts the people who are the remnant out of all the nation. Those whom have been walking uprightly will be gathered, gathered into a flock, and the way is made before them. The, the breaking out language means clearing the way. They are seen as being saved, 
delivered and set free by their great king. And brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus came to do. He came to set the captives free. In Christ, we have the foundation. He is, as we sang, our hope, our anchor of hope in this world. He is our king, the one to whom we live in obedience. He is our teacher, the one who shows us the way. He is our God, the object of our worship. And so... At the end of the day, brothers and sisters, I ask you, right now, what kind of preaching are you hungry for? Are you hungry for the kind of preaching that is in constant onslaught of affirmation, but is, as Micah says, lies and air? Or are you hungry for the pure word of God that teaches you the truth, however uncomfortable it might be, but even the most discomforting parts are always and only given for your good. Understand, brothers and sisters, that the collapse of Israelite and Judean society did not happen overnight. It happened through years and decades and scores and centuries of theological compromise reflected first in the teaching and then second in the morals, and finally in the governance. Guard your doctrine. So guard your pulpit. Guard your Bible study. Guard who becomes an elder. Guard who becomes a deacon. Guard it. Because in so doing, you ensure that a good foundation remains. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have established the teaching and preaching of your word so that we can know you better and know what you expect of us. Thank you for how you have indeed promised your salvation to those who walk in faith and that you have sent your son to be our great rescuer. Lord, grant that each of us would be hungry for your word and truth and that we wouldn't desire our, itch, our ears to be itched and scratched so that we can safely forget about and leave in the corner your word. Be with us as we make our way in this world, for it is perilous, and your way is sure. Amen.